I want to begin our time together tonight as we take a break from our series in Genesis to reflect on this particular week as we think of our Lord's trials. I want to begin our time reading from Isaiah 53. You're welcome to turn there or you can just follow me as I read that portion of scripture. I'm going to read from Isaiah 53 verse 3 to verse 10. title of this particular chapter is, of course, The Suffering Servant. Isaiah writes, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You know, we all live in the same world and we relatively have access to similar kind of technology as anyone else does. To say that machines and technology have made our lives easier would be to really put it lightly. You know, thousands of equations are solved in a matter of seconds. Information is received and processed at a rate which our minds can't even comprehend. Now in such a world, with its relative comforts that technology offers and all the high-tech gadgets that are out there, we can, to some extent, feel shielded or shield ourselves from brutalities and evil that exists in this world. Face-to-face, uh, -face, in person communication is great on one hand, but it's quickly and sadly replaced by texts and other forms of communication. Now don't, don't get me wrong, I, I do appreciate and love the benefits of the advancements, but I wonder if it comes at a cost to each one of us. You know, we have had an abundance of ways in which we can communicate with each other but still find ourselves isolated and many a times dejected and depressed and maybe even shielded. Now in such a world that is shielded, what we are increasingly beginning to have is a tendency to convince ourselves that man is inherently good but only acts in evil ways when circumstances force him to. We can tend to hold the view, for example, that we are all we're all good people at the core, 
and only evil on peripheral things. In a, in, a, in a shielded world, the brutal mistreatment and suffering of a man that took place 2,000 years ago comes as a, as a shock. But even more shocking is the fact that even 2,000 years after it first took place, followers of Christ still reflect on that day and the first day of the week that followed it. And so I want to ask us as we go through this Passion Week, ask and answer two questions for us today. What really happened in its immediate context that led to the crucifixion of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph? What really happened in the immediate context in regards to the trials that he went through? And secondly, what is the purpose behind it all? What is the purpose for what happened? What was God doing behind the scenes? What was he accomplishing through what happened? So I want to focus on the trials of our Lord and understand the purpose behind those trials. I want to begin by painting a picture of those trials because of the fact that many a times we don't fully recognize that there were actually six distinct trials that our Lord went through before he was sentenced to be crucified. Many times we can think of one of those trials or two of those trials, but we don't recognize the fact that there are at least six that he went through. Three of the six trials are also called as the Jewish or religious trials, and the rest are called Roman trials. So I want to begin by painting a picture of the trials. And because we would merely paint a picture, we won't plan on going in-depth into each text that we will come across, but we want to merely get a sense of what is going on. And hopefully, that sets the stage for, uh, for you as you read through the texts that we have for us as a church this, this week. So I have two things to share with you, a picture of the trials and the, and the purpose of the trials. Let's begin with a picture of the trials. As I mentioned, there are a total of six trials that Jesus went through before he was crucified. Uh, three of those trials which took place first are the religious trials uh, that were conducted by religious authorities. So they were Jewish in nature. And then the last three are what we can call as the civil trials or the Roman trials led or judged by uh, someone who was either directly connected with Rome or someone who was assigned by Rome. The first trial we will look at is the first Jewish trial. It's only mentioned in John's Gospel in chapter 18. If you were here, if you're a part of our church, our pastor actually walked us through that, so I won't go in depth, but I, I would love to mention a few things. What are some of the things that we can think as we think of this trial? For example, who is involved in uh, judging? Well, it is Annas the high priest. Turn with me to John chapter 18. And notice what John tells us. He says in verse 12, So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first. John tells us that this Roman cohort, which consisted perhaps of about 200 soldiers, and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and first led him to Annas. He tells us further that Annas is actually the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. 
Now, the reason they may have taken Jesus to Annas first was because even though he was not the high priest, he was the one who controlled who the high priest was. And secondly, the plan to arrest Jesus in this manner may very well have originated with Annas. And Caiaphas was merely a remote control, but the one who was controlling the remote was Annas, and so they take him there. Now, Annas may have had many reasons for initiating this. Annas directly benefited from, from the business that was coming out of the temple. You remember there are at least two instances mentioned in the gospel where Jesus was um, rightfully angry with those who were trying to gain money uh, from what was happening in the temple. And so Annas directly benefited from the business that was coming out of the temple, and Jesus was a threat to him, first of all, at least financially, but also he was, threat, he was a threat to his authority. So that is Annas. When did this trial take place? Well, as we begin uh, uh, kind of focusing on the times, I want to mention that all of the times that I would mention are approximate times. Even within the Gospels, we have John mentioning a certain time for what was happening, uh, looking at it from a different angle compared to what Mark is mentioning. So the timings that I will share with you are approximate timings. Don't hold me to the minute or the second. You know, when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and when he was first brought to Annas, a few hours have passed already. In fact, a few hours have passed after the Last Supper, and then they go to Garden of Gethsemane where our Lord is praying. From that time to when they come to Annas' house, a, a lot of time has passed. So by the time we come to Annas' house, it very well may have been 11.30 in the night or perhaps even after midnight. It's interesting to note this because if this figure, if this time is true, then Jesus went through six trials within a, a, a span of nine hours. Because Mark actually tells us that Jesus was crucified around the third hour. And Matthew and Luke tell us that darkness fell around the sixth hour. And Jesus died around the ninth hour. The third hour was 9 a.m. in the morning. Sixth hour was noon in the afternoon. And then the ninth hour was 3 p.m. So if that is the case, if Jesus was crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning, then all the trials took place between 11.30 and somewhere around 8.30 in the morning. What really happened in this trial? You know, Annas was actually known for his ability to cross-examine the witnesses. John tells us that the high priest himself, Annas, questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. To that question, which is recorded here from verse 19 to verse 24, Jesus answers, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple. That is, I taught in public settings where all the Jews came together and I spoke nothing in secret. So why are you illegally questioning me and why don't you ask those who heard me speak? That is our Lord's response to Annas. From the beginning itself, the, the trial itself was illegal. There were no charges pressed to begin with. There were no witnesses that brought any charges and no witnesses to defend Jesus against any charge. And so when our Lord answered Annas directly in this way, one officer probably intending to show his allegiance to the high priest struck Jesus. That is, he hit him hard with 
with a fist or perhaps even slapped him. And Jesus says, if I have spoken wrongly, verse 23, testify of the wrong, but if rightly, why do you strike me? And then no further conversation is recorded. What is the verdict of this trial? Well, before we even go to the verdict or the sentencing, we have to ask why did this trial take place at all? It may very well have taken place to kill time. You see, the religious leaders did not want to arrest and prosecute Jesus uh, during the festival. In fact, they didn't want to do it during the festival. They didn't want to draw attention to what was going on. And because they hadn't planned during, for the trial to take place during the festival, they did not have the required number of people to move forward with the case. And so taking Jesus to Annas first would buy them some time. But secondly, uh, this first trial allowed Annas to hear Jesus and perhaps even identify something in, in the responses that Jesus was giving to turn Annas into a witness against Jesus. But thirdly, this trial also provided Annas the opportunity to directly interact with Jesus, which would be helpful later on when Jesus was presented before the full Sanhedrin, which, made up, which was made up of 71 individuals. And so therefore, Annas was interested in, in knowing more about Jesus and how big his movement was and who was the individuals that he was in touch with. And so Annas wanted to take all of that information out of Jesus, but Jesus rightfully responded him to go to those people who heard him speak. What was the verdict of this particular trial? Clearly, Annas was not able to find anything that he could falsely accuse Jesus of. He had a verdict and a sentence in mind even before he started questioning Jesus, but he couldn't get to a credi credible accusation or a charge. And so although unspoken, the verdict here is guilty because he would send Jesus to Caiaphas next. But there is no sentencing at this stage. That brings us to the second Jewish trial, which is recorded for us in the scriptures that I've mentioned up there. Turn with me to Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 26. Notice verse 57. It says, Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Uh, who was the one who was sitting in the position of the judge? It was Caiaphas, the high priest. In fact, interestingly, Caiaphas actually means the inquisitor or the one who seeks with diligence. <laughs> what an irony. You see, he was the son-in-law of Annas and occupied the role of, of a high priest, uh, a role that was appointed by the Romans. It was a position that the Romans were involved in and it could be a position that could be purchased with money. What a difference between the first high priest, Aaron, and the ones that we have in first century here during Jesus' generation. History tells us that Caiaphas actually served in that role for almost two decades, from 18 AD to 36 AD. John tells us in John 18 verse 14 that Caiaphas was already biased against the Lord Jesus Christ because he had already decided a verdict and the sentence for a trial before even the trial taking place. The high priest also here, in this case, Caiaphas, was the leader of the Sanhedrin, 
which was the Jew Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin had 71 members, including the high priest. Now, it was an odd number because in case of a hung decision, the high priest had the power to make the final decision. And so they had 71 members in this Jewish Supreme Court called Sanhedrin, and the leader of the Sanhedrin was Caiaphas, the high priest. Well, we have to ask, secondly, when did this particular trial take place? You know, Caiaphas and Annas actually shared a common wall between their houses. And so once Jesus leaves Annas' house, or Jesus was led out of Annas' house to Caiaphas' house, mentioned in verse 24 and also mentioned here in verse 57 of Matthew 26, it would have been a matter of minutes before Jesus arrived for his second trial at Caiaphas' house. Matthew actually tells us that Jesus was led to Caiaphas' house and that when he was led, already waiting for him there were scribes and elders. So in one way, the plans that they had of killing time in the first trial was accomplished because you already gathered elders and scribes. So when was this trial? This very well may have been between 2 to 4 a.m. early, early in the morning. Again, these are approximate times based on when Jesus was crucified and when he was captured for arrest first. What happened during these trials? Well, Matthew tells us that the chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. You see, they had already decided what they wanted to do with Jesus. All they were doing now was trying to gather false evidence. But Matthew tells us that he, they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, he says, two came forward and declared, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. In Mark chapter 14, Mark tells us that even in this accusation, there was inconsistency. Mark is saying that none of the testimony against Jesus even rose to the status of an equal testimony, that is, two witnesses agreeing completely with what they were accusing Jesus about. And according to Jewish law, even a slight discrepancy was enough to nullify a charge. So, for example, if one witness said that Jesus said, I'm able to destroy, and another witness said, Jesus said, I will destroy, it, was, it should have been considered inconsistent enough to dismiss the charge. In fact, Jesus does not say either of those things. In John chapter 2, verse 13, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. At this stage, if all the trials were legally done, Jesus should have been found not guilty and released immediately. However, because of the trial's results and verdict was already predetermined, Caiaphas was not willing to let go of Jesus at this stage. What then were the supposed charges that Caiaphas actually wants to bring against Jesus? Well, from different texts, we can gather a few things. Just a summary for, you guys, for, for us as we think of what may have been the charges. Well, one of the charges may have been that here is a false prophet deceiving people with false doctrines. The other charge could be that he was trying to overtly or covertly attack Jewish authorities. Also, that he was planning a sedition which would lead to Roman intervention. But the one charge that they do zone in on and pursue further is the charge which 
is the, is the charge that he did not repudiate Messianic claims. He did not say that I'm not the Messiah. Of course, if you had said that, that would be a lie. And Jesus, being who he is, the perfect man, holy, perfectly holy, would not lie. Now, if two witnesses could not agree to what is stated, it was going to be difficult to prove the, the initial charges. But it was especially difficult because Jesus was not saying anything. If you were to follow the trial in the texts that I've mentioned, you would realize that Jesus was not responding to any of the questions that, was coming, that were coming his way. But there was a way in which Jesus could be forced to respond, and it had to do with a good knowledge of the Old Testament law. Here's how it worked. Now Caiaphas, being the high priest, was expected to know what was written in the Old Testament, and he knew that anyone who blasphemed must be stoned, Leviticus chapter 24. What is to commit blasphemy? Well, it is to misuse the name of God or to cause an affront to God's majesty and his authority. In fact, if you were claimed to be the Messiah, if you claimed to be divine and you were a human being, that would constitute blasphemy. Well, he knew that law, but secondly, he knew how to get Jesus to that stage that he did by asking questions such as, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? By asking self-incriminating questions like that, you could put Jesus in a situation where he had to answer those questions. But nothing came more closely than the third one, which Caiaphas knew how to get Jesus to respond to this charge and prohibit him from remaining silent. And how did he do that? Well, he began his questioning by saying, I charge you under oath. I charge you under oath. If Jesus would have remained silent, he would be held responsible for the charge. This was a public charge to testify. And so not only was Jesus compelled to respond, but he was to respond truthfully. You see, Jesus was the only man to live a perfect life. And therefore, he responds, you have said it yourself. Yes, it is as you say, that is correct. You're saying, you're right in saying that that is who I am. And so in one short exchange, Caiaphas was able to bring a charge against the Lord Jesus Christ, and he needed just two witnesses, but now he had perhaps more than 60 witnesses to what Jesus had just claimed to be. You see, their sin had blinded them so, so much that they did not have a category for a person who claimed to be the Messiah and rightfully would be the Messiah. They did not have anyone in that category. And so for anyone claiming to be the Messiah, for them it was blasphemy. What is the verdict in this situation? Well, it is this. It is guilty as charged and sentenced to death. Notice verse 66 in chapter 26 of Matthew. Well, let me read verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, he deserves death. Guilty as charge. You see, in the Sanhedrin, it was customary actually to let the younger members of the Sanhedrin vote first so as not to be influenced by the older members. But in this case, Caiaphas, he tore his robes, it says, he voted first with, his, with a nonverbal sign, and 
if that was not enough, he went ahead and shouted his thoughts. That is, he said he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of any witnesses? Guilty and sentenced to die. That brings us to the third trial. Not much is mentioned about this trial compared to the other trials. So we have a few verses here and there in Matthew and Mark. But even one verse should be enough for us, shouldn't it? Uh, who are we talking about here? We're talking about the entire Sanhedrin. You see, the Sanhedrin, as I mentioned earlier, acted as the Supreme Court of Israel. Uh, this was a body that followed after the Council of Elders that our Lord instructed Moses to put together in Numbers 11. There, uh, with Moses, Moses was instructed to have 70 elders, and then when he was added to the number, it would have been 71, and their job was to govern Israel when they were in the wilderness. The Sanhedrin, too, had 71 members. There were 24 chief priests and 46 elders chosen from among the scribes, Pharisees and the Sadducees. The leader of the Sanhedrin was the high priest. He was also the, not only the overseer of the Sanhedrin, but he was also a voting member. Uh, this brought the number to 71, but it also ensured the fact that uh, a decision could be reached by a majority vote. You know, just like the position of the chief priest was up for sale in the first century, so were the seats in the Sanhedrin. It's no wonder that majority of the cases as they were decided displayed favoritism and, and pa partisanship in how the decisions were reached. And it was this body that Jesus was brought to in this third trial. Were there members of the Sanhedrin in the second trial? Yes. We don't know how many were there, but in this one we can say that they were almost at a number which allowed them to have the quorum to pass the final decision. When was this particular trial taking place? But Mark tells us that when the Sanhedrin met, it was after Peter had denied our Lord two times and the rooster crowed after that. Now what does that have to do with the timing? Well, the rooster generally crows about a, an hour before dawn. And so this trial may very well have been somewhere between 4.30 and 5.30 on that Friday morning. Remember now, it's more than six hours that Jesus has been under arrest as he goes from one trial to another. He's led from one trial to another. What was being discussed in this particular trial? Well, the main question apart from what happened in this trial is to ask, why did this third one take place at all? Remember I mentioned that the religious authorities did not have time to prepare, adequately prepare for the trial and so it's possible that in the second trial, they did not have enough members to pass that sentence and finalize that sentence. But also, any capital trial, according to Jewish laws, should not take place in the night. That was considered illegal. They needed something then to have happened in the morning. And that's how this trial comes in place. Also, a daytime trial gives the trial a certain respectability and legality. And so they meet at, a, at, at daybreak. Matthew simply states in Matthew 27, if you're still there, in verse 1, he says, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. They had the quorum that was needed to pass the sentence, but not much is recorded of the conversation that takes place here. And similar to the earlier trial, we 
also have Jesus pronounced guilty and sentenced to die. Now with this third trial, the three Jewish or religious trials come to an end. This truly marks the end of the religious trials. What happens after this? Notice verse 2 of chapter 27 in Matthew. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. A similar text is also found in Mark chapter 15, verse 1 and verse 2. You might ask, well, why go to the Roman governor at all? Hadn't, hadn't they passed the sentence? Well, they did. Well, while they passed the sentence, they did not have the authority to carry out that sentence uh, because the authority to execute someone or a capital punishment rested with the Roman ruler who also acted as a judge. Now, you might say, are there not other instances in the scripture where, for example, Stephen, who was stoned to death, did, did the Jews not do that on their own there? Yes, they, they did. But Stephen was not as prominent as Jesus is in this instance. And so any prominent individual that was to be executed, they wanted to bring that individual to the attention of the Roman ruler. Also remember, this is Passover feast. There's a, at least a few hundred thousand individuals traveling from outside coming to Jerusalem at this time. And the religious authorities may not want to be seen with blood on their hands. And so really, in bringing Jesus to Pilate, there's a few advantages that they had. Uh, they could consider this as a stamp of approval by the civil authority that existed there. You see, if the Roman governor carried out uh, the execution of the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's clear that it's not only the religious individual, uh, establishment that, was, that approved that sentence, but it's also the civil government that has approved that sentence. And so they could be seen by the public being on the same page if they used Pilate in this way. You begin to think the, the depth of the evil and sinful attitudes and thoughts and actions on the part of this so-called religious leaders. That brings us to the Roman trial. This was Roman trial number one. It, it is one of those trials that's covered in all of the four Gospels. Might begin by asking, who is this individual? His name is Pontius Pilate. For a number of years, there was no historical evidence for a man named Pontius Pilate who served as the governor of Judea. Until 1961, when some archaeologists actually discovered a stone dating to the first century uh, with the inscription, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, made and dedicated the Tiberium to the divine Augustus. Now this stone is the first and only mention of Pilate from an archaeological source. And this, by the way, is actually on display in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. With this, we now have historical evidence for who Pilate was. So what kind of a man was he? Uh, we have information from Josephus, who actually is the first century Jewish historian. Pilate was a Roman representative in Judea who served for... 10 years in the role that he was in, a prefect or a governor of that region. It was a very, very volatile region because Jerusalem was at the center of it all. But Pilate did not reside in Jerusalem. He resided in the northwest of Jerusalem, a place called Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Maritima, or Maritima. But he came to Jerusalem during festivals to maintain order. 
And that's how he is in Jerusalem at this time. Pilate as an individual actually commanded somewhere between 1,000 to 5,000 auxiliary troops. So he had a number of troops under his authority. Josephus, the Jewish historian from the first century, describes Pilate as someone who, I quote, was cruel, anti-Semitic, stubborn, and an insensitive man. That's who Pilate was. What did he do that was insensitive? Well, there was an incident where he brought Roman troops into Jerusalem once when he was fairly new to his position. And no one before that in his position had done that before because that would be considered idolatry. And so he did that just in the initial days that he was a prefect of Judea, which actually led to riots. He also was accused of stealing money from the temple treasury to build aqueducts. Also slaughtered pilgrims from Galilee who were on their way to Jerusalem. He was just a cruel and insensitive and a stubborn man. But he was the exact man and the only man who could help the Jewish leadership accomplish the plans of executing Jesus. And so they bring him to Jesus. We might want to turn to Mark chapter 15 to kind of get a sense of the story. Mark chapter 15. Having considered who this individual is, we can begin to think when this particular trial took place. You see, Roman governors actually ended their day at 12 o'clock in the noon. They had a good job in that sense. They heard charges between 6 to 9 in the morning. So it was important for the Jewish leaders actually to bring Jesus as soon as the gates were opened. And so it's possible then that the leaders were with Jesus somewhere around 5.30 or so, between 5.30 and 6 in the morning. What happened in this particular trial? Well, Luke in his account actually tells us that religious leaders began to accuse Jesus of misleading the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. And they also claimed that he claimed to be Christ, a king. Do you begin to sense a difference between the charges that they brought at the Jewish trials and the charges that they are now bringing for the Roman trials. The charge is no longer blasphemy because the Jewish leaders knew that that wouldn't stick with the Roman governor. So they bring charges that would appeal to him, claiming to be king, would appeal because Romans hated and despised anyone who was looking to usurp the authority of the Romans. Notice to the accusation that they bring, Pilate questions Jesus in verse 2 of chapter 15 in Mark. Are you the king of the Jews? Our Lord's answer, it is as you say. Literally, you're saying, that is right. To that response, Luke tells us that Pilate looks at the leaders and says to them, the Jewish leaders, I find no fault in this man. But they continue to accuse him harshly. Luke, in his account, further tells us that, he, that they accused him of stirring up people teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. To the, to the accusation that Pilate questioned him again, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. Jesus actually makes no further response to even Pilate. And so the text tells us in, at the end of verse 5 in Mark 15, 
that Pilate was amazed at the no responses that he was getting from Jesus. The word there for amazed can also be translated extraordinarily impressed. Pilate was extraordinarily impressed with Jesus. Well, you might ask, well, why? Why was he impressed with Jesus? Well, at least for two reasons. The first one is that with such a response from a one who is accused of strange charges, it was strange because everyone who came before Pilate, remember this is the governor of Judea, he has been the governor for at least four years before Jesus is brought to him, and before anyone who is coming to Pilate accused of something, they would go out of their way to defend themselves because they knew Pilate was a cruel, stubborn, and insensitive man. He was a ruthless judge. And so people, before they were, when they were brought before Pilate, had to make sure that they had done their best to defend themselves. But all that Pilate was getting from this man was a dignified silence. What a contrast between the loud and boisterous accusations from the leaders on one side and then absolutely nothing from Jesus. And so the more the Pilate observed Jesus, the more he actually wanted to do everything he could to release him. But there was a second reason why Pilate was amazed. You see, there was a Roman law according to which the accused were given three opportunities to change their mind and speak up in their own defense. And if the judge was convinced that the accused was not guilty, which Pilate was in this case, then all that the accused needed to do was to speak up in their own defense and the trial would have been over. But Jesus does not do that. And that amazes Pilate. You know, as the scene continues to unfold, Pilate picks up on that one statement in, in one of the accusations that was about him, that is Jesus, teaching from Galilee to Judea. Oh, is he from Galilee, he asks. Yes, comes the response. And so he sends Jesus to Herod, who is actually overseeing that particular region. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent, so he does not want to condemn Jesus, and therefore he sends Jesus to Herod. What is Pilate's verdict and sentencing in this case? Well, he does not find Jesus guilty. And because he does not find Jesus guilty, there is no need to pass a sentence. Pilate then sends Jesus to Herod. We come now to the second Roman trial and the fifth overall. Uh, this trial is only recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 23, verse 8 to 12. You might want to turn there as we kind of walk through that particular story. Might be long here tonight. Luke chapter 23. Let's begin with who this individual is. His name is Herod Antipas. Herod was a family name that ruled Israel. Um, in the scriptures, there are at least four rulers that are named Herod. Um, the one mentioned here in this Roman trial is Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great. It was Herod the Great that uh, initiated the murder of children in and around Bethlehem when Jesus was born. That was this Herod's father. Herod Antipas then was the son. Uh, this was also the Herod that divorced his wife to marry his brother's wife, Herodias. It was he, that is this one, who beheaded John the Baptist as well. He was the Tetrarch of Galilee, and so Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. 
Herod happens to be in Jerusalem at the same time. And that's what Luke mentions to us. Uh, then we come to what, uh, at what time did this trial take place? If the first trial, Roman trial, took place between 5.30 and 6.30, uh, this one approximately took place between 6.30 and 7.30. Again, these are approximate timings. It had to be after the first Roman trial and before the third Roman trial. So this is the only time that we can see there because at 9 o'clock Jesus is crucified. Now, what happens in this particular trial? Well, when Herod sees Jesus, he was very glad to see Jesus. He wanted to see him for a long time. And so, why? Because he was hoping that Jesus would perform some miracles. Herod questions him for a long time, but to him as well, Jesus answers nothing. There was not much Herod could do after Jesus does not respond to his questions. And so his soldiers mock him, they treat him with contempt, dress him in a gorgeous robe, and they send him back to Pilate. Luke goes on to tell us that before this trial, Pilate was at enmity with Herod, but after this incident, they became friends. But what did happen here? Well, by sending Jesus to Herod first, Pilate sent a Galilean back to someone who was in charge of Galilee. It's kind of recognizing Herod's authority over that region. And Herod, in sending Jesus back to Pilate, was affirming the judgment and the conclusion that Pilate had reached about Jesus. So this man was innocent and had done nothing worthy of death. So clear was the case that two of the worst and cruelest of leaders had reached the same conclusion about Jesus Christ. Jesus was innocent. And so in sending Jesus back to Pilate, Herod is saying, I agree with your conclusion, with your verdict. And for the second time in the trials of our Lord, then he is declared not guilty. And because he is not guilty, there's no sentencing as well. Now that brings us to the final trial. Uh, this is the third and the final Roman trial. Who is involved here? Pontius Pilate. We've already looked at him before. When did this happen? Happened approximately between 7.30 and 8.30 in the morning. How do we know that? Well, again, it's an approximation because 9 o'clock is when he was crucified. What happened in this particular trial? Notice the texts that I have mentioned there. You might want to go back to Mark chapter 15. We'll look at a few verses as we bring this to a close. Mark chapter 15. Now remember, this was Passover. A Passover was a celebration of God deliver, delivering the Israelites from the Egyptians. And this feast, more than any other feasts, reminded them of God's deliverance. God setting them free. And so as a goodwill gesture, the Roman rulers would release them a prisoner whomever they requested. Now it says whomever they requested, but it actually, there's a list of prisoners that the Roman authorities would come to the Jewish people with. And from that list, they would select an individual. Now this was a practice that was known to the Jews. In the Gospel of John, John records for us that Pilate actually was the one who reminded uh, the Jews of this custom. Uh, this custom or this system that prisoners could be released or requested to be released at a festival. What does Mark tell us? Notice verse 7. 
A man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. Mark chapter 15 verse 7. Mark tells us that there was a man named Barabbas who was imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. Now historians tell us that there were many, many insurrections that took place, that is revolts against the Roman authority. The climax of those revolts, as we now know for sure, was between 66 and 70 AD. In 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. That was the climax of those insurrections. But there were at least 30 to 40 such insurrections that took place in that first century. There were many different regions of Israel and one of uh, many different individuals that were involved in these insurrections. And one of those leaders, perhaps a prominent one, would be Barabbas. Uh, that's why he is named. That's why he is known. Barabbas, by the way, means son of the father. Bar meaning son and Abbas meaning father. Uh, here was a convicted murderer and so he was captured and held in prison. Also, this is the first time that a crowd comes into play. Notice verse 8. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Before this, we don't have a crowd come into play. If I had to suggest a seventh trial, it would be a trial through the crowd that was gathered there outside of the praetorium. What does Pilate do? Pilate actually brings out Barabbas with an intention that they would look at this murderer and they would say, okay, all right, if it's Barabbas that you're going to compare Jesus with, release Jesus. That's what Pilate was thinking. But that's not what these self-centered, narcissistic individuals were thinking. No, they wanted Jesus dead and dead at any cost. Even at the cost of someone who was a murderer. All right, then what should I do with some, the one you call king of the Jews, what should I do with him? Pilate finally opens the door for them to pass a sentence. Notice verse 13. They shouted back, crucify him. We want this individual crucified. We want him dead. We cannot execute, execute him, but you can. And so we want you to do that for us. Pilate actually does not still give up on wanting to release Jesus. In fact, Luke 23 verse 20 tells us that Pilate wanted to release Jesus. So he asks the crowd again, why, what evil has he done? But they continue to shout even more, crucify him, crucify him. You see, Pilate now had opened the door for crucifixion and he found it difficult to close that door again. Luke tells us also in Luke 23, 23, that the crowd's voices began to prevail. You know, Pilate, as violent and cruel and unjust an individual as he was, for the first time in his life, he comes face to face with someone who had completely shaken him up. If you were to read the text that I have mentioned there with those two trials with Pilate, you begin to see a picture emerge of who Pilate was. Pilate regularly behaved as though he had all the power, but he knew that he did not. He lived as though he was accountable to no one, all the while having an innate sense that his power and his authority was a derived one. And for the very first time in his life, as he faces Jesus, he comes face to face with someone whose kingdom was not of this world. He was facing an authority for the first time, apart from Caesar, that was higher than himself. 
higher than Caesar. And for a few brief hours, his sense of justice had been aroused and he wanted to do everything he could to release this man. But then we read in verse 15, wishing to satisfy the crowd. A clear case of injustice and even with insurmountable evidence at his disposable, that disposal that Jesus was innocent was not enough for him to release Jesus. Why? Well, it was because of something that the crowd actually said, which is not recorded in Mark, but it's recorded in John. So turn with me to John chapter 19. Look at a couple of verses there. John chapter 19, verse 12 and verse 13. When Jesus tells Pilate, you would not have no authority, you would not have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin, verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. As much as his sense of justice has been aroused, Pilate ultimately was a very self-centered man. Pilate, you see, ultimately was about Pilate. He was a representative of Caesar and he could not be known, he could not afford to be known as a sympathizer with one who challenges the authority of Caesar. So Pilate was a flawed, sinful and a depraved man. And what does he do in the end? He releases a murderer and condemns Jesus to be crucified. I don't miss the irony in this third trial. It was Barabbas who had actually committed murder and was convicted as a murderer. He actually was the one who was in prison for insurrection. Yet it was Jesus, a completely innocent man who was falsely accused of insurrection and condemned to die. Barabbas was released as we now know, but Jesus was condemned to die in his place. You see, when those three crosses went up on that Friday morning, the middle cross should have had Barabbas instead of Jesus. Barabbas, as I mentioned earlier, means son of the father. Some early manuscripts actually in fact claim that his first name was Jesus. His full name would have been Yeshua Barabbas, Jesus the son of the father. But you see, the real Jesus stood up. It was the Lord Jesus Christ, the true son of the father who took the place of the human and sinful son of the father, Barabbas. Jesus truly was the substitute. As he was for a Barabbas, he is for you and me as well. His death brought life to Barabbas. What was Pilate's verdict? Well, even though Pilate found him not guilty and at least four times proclaimed him to be not guilty, by his actions and finally under pressure, he sentenced Jesus to die by crucifixion thereby declaring him to be guilty. Some later historians actually tell us that he could not live under the weight of that guilt and eventually he killed himself. We can't be so sure, but that wouldn't be something that would surprise us, would it? He knew that Jesus was a perfectly innocent man and yet he condemned him to die. How do we respond to these trials? You would have noticed that I've not actually come to the crucifixion. Perhaps you might want to pursue that 
in your own readings as you go through the Passion readings with our church. But let me quickly draw five purposes that were accomplished through those trials. These are slides that would be posted on the website, so you may not want to rush to take the notes. But first of all, uh, the trials actually demonstrate the sinfulness of sin. Illegality, brutality of treatment, scourging, mocking, shame, shaming, insulting. What do those all display when done against a perfectly innocent man? (laughs) The sinfulness of our sin. Romans 3, verse 10 to 18, Paul says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become useless. There there is none who does good, there is not even one. If you think that it was what the leaders did, then Romans 3.23 condemns all of us, doesn't it? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The trials of Jesus then demonstrate the sinfulness of sin. Secondly, they display the depth of God's love. Romans 5, 6, and 8, Paul writes, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you. Christ died for me. And then the most known verse in the scriptures, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The length to which we sinned against God, oh, God goes to the exact opposite and loves us in that while we were yet sinners, that he would send his son to die for us. In our study on Sunday mornings, our pastor is going through 1 John chapter 4 at this moment. In the first six verses, we are told that Christ became flesh. Do you understand what that means? That means the second person of Trinity took on flesh for eternity, for you and for me. Thirdly, The trials and the death that our Lord went through reconciles us to God. Romans 5, 10, and 11 says, Paul writes, For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is his death that brought reconciliation between you and a holy God, between me and a holy God. Fourthly, his death frees us from the slavery of sin. Hebrews 13, 12 says, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Revelation 1, 5 and 6, as John introduces the the book to us, he says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Because of Jesus' death, 
you are freed from the slavery to sin. You're declared justified. You're declared righteous. Not only that, fifthly and finally, because of what our Lord went through for us, it enables us to live for him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. I don't know where each one of you stands when it comes to your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But even as you looked at the trials that our Lord went through and the purpose for which it was done, I hope and pray that your trust is in him alone for being justified before God. Not only that, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then know that this is your and this is my purpose statement. Because he died for me, so that I might, live, I might live no longer for myself, but for him who died and rose again on my behalf and your behalf. As you read through the passages that relate to our Lord's last week, I hope that this brings to you, uh, gives you a, a picture that is real, but not only that, but that it fills you with hope. Because he not only died, on the third day he rose again, he is victorious over death. We have the assurance that when we die, that when we are absent in the body, that we will be with him. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the clarity with which your word speaks to us. Lord, these are trials that our Lord went through for us. Not only do they show the sinfulness of sin, it puts on full display what our sin has done to our creator. If he would have just died, he would, he would be like any other man who died for a good cause, but he didn't just die. He rose again on the third day, and on his perfect life, it was as if you put a stamp of approval by raising him on the third day. And so we thank you for him. Lord, help us to make the most of the time that you've given us here on this earth, that we would make the time count and that we would live every moment for your glory alone and not for ours. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.